0: This is The Ark of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Listen as Donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world, because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. And now, here's your host, Donzel Leggett. Hello and welcome to the 10th and final
1: episode of Season 3 of The Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett. In this episode, I welcome John Melrod, best-selling author of the new book, Fighting Times, who over the last 60 years has fought on the front lines of the war to end racism, classism, and sexism, and is one of the very few to have confronted the KKK, volunteer for SNCC, and the Black Panther Party, and be investigated by the FBI for his actions. John's incredible, inspiring story provides our most powerful example yet of hope. That's H-O-P-E, how optimistic people endure. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzel Leggett, host of the ARC of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC. Our vision at ARC is to build a racism-free world, and our mission is to provide inspiration, education, and support for you to transform, practice, and spread anti-racism and anti-hate. This begins with our three-step process for personal transformation to anti-racism. The first step is erasing your ignorance about racism and hate. The second step is educating yourself about anti-racism. And the third step is building the character and confidence to stand up, speak out, and take action to spread anti-racism and anti-hate and make positive change happen. Now, we started 2023 with our first episode of Season 3 titled H-O-P-E, How Optimistic People Endure, in which I highlighted the fact that Although progress is slow in the fight to end racism and fight for equality and and social justice, we all must dig deep and stay optimistic and endure the struggles, the setbacks, and the frustrations that come our way. Because eventually, if we stay at it and stay together, progress will be made. I profiled and interviewed many guests throughout the season and shared their stories of perseverance, optimism, and endurance in the fight against racism and hate. As examples of H-O-P-E, how optimistic people endure to inspire you to transform, practice, and spread anti-racism and anti-hate. But I have to say that as we close 2023 with our 10th and final episode of Season 3, my guest today has the most incredible story of personal transformation into a true soldier on the front lines of the war to fight racism, classism, and sexism. He made the choice to voluntarily sacrifice whatever privilege he may have had or could have had, to stand up, speak out, and take action, to spread anti-racism and anti-hate and make positive change happen while suffering economic hardship and even putting himself in physical danger over and over again. He has to be one of the very, very few people, if not the only person, besides maybe Stokely Carmichael, most certainly the only white person that I'm aware of, to have done all the following. He confronted the KKK and police in Mississippi 50 years ago or so, which at that time were one and the same. He volunteered for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee of which the late, great Representative John Lewis was a founding member and chair. He volunteered for the Black Panther Party and even served as a bodyguard for a senior Black Panther official, all while being investigated by the FBI for his actions. Name one other person who has done all those things. Like I said, maybe Stokely Carmichael? I can't think of anybody else. He's the activist, the revolutionary, the cancer survivor, the best-selling author of the new book, Fighting Times organizing on the front lines of the class war, and his name is John Melrod. He is here with us right now to close out season three with a bang and tell his truly incredible and inspiring story of, yes, hope. H-O-P-E, how optimistic people
2: endure. John, welcome to the Arc of Change. Well, thank you so much, Donzel. And That was really a beautiful introduction. It made me uh, shiver that your description, I guess, you know, it's always been what I've done. So I don't look at it as anything that's unique. But what I do hope is over the discussion today, I can contribute to your movement, to your podcast and inspire people as you say because these are difficult political times. you know. I agree with you that hope is always there and we have to continue the mission of trying to change the world for the better, but it can be a bit demoralizing sometimes. When I look back to what we believed in the mid 60s, when we thought the world was ours to change and that by this age, I assumed we would live in a much better world that was free of racism and free of sexism and, and, and just free of the tribalism that we're experiencing today. So as we get into it, that's what's always been in my heart is we can make change. And we'll talk about how when confronted with, you know, other workers in the factory who were racist. I was able to get them to understand why and how us uniting empowered us and the same with women when women were being just so much misogyny by both the the auto company and by the union the international union of the uaw again we had to fight on both fronts to make those battles something that would move the ball forward for all people
1: man Thank you. That's just a taste of what John has in store. John, I had the great pleasure of getting to know you. This is like our third, I think, uh, conversation, um, you know, on Zoom. But many in our audience don't know you. I've had the great pleasure of reading your book. We'll get to that here in a second. But maybe you can go back and get, tell yourself, just the audience, a little bit about yourself, your background, where you came from. I think that's important because I talked about you voluntarily making this choice. You didn't have to. So tell us about your background. Um, Kind of where are you today? What's your your current situation? Uh, What do you do? And then we're going to get into fighting times.
2: All right. Well, just to to try and be brief, I grew up in Washington, D.C. In the 50s. And Washington, D.C. in the 50s was very much part of the South. I mean, Jim Crow was alive and well. And that's where I first got my taste of realizing that the world have basic inequities in it. I can remember when my father was very proud. He had just bought a a, uh, Chevy Impala and he took the kids out to the countryside for a drive. And on the side of the road, I was looking out the window and there was an all-black chain gang chained together at at the ankles, chained together at the waist, wearing black and white stripes and big prison guards sitting on top of horses with long guns. And just as a child, that imagery stuck with me. Why why are some people being treated like this? And really, as I began to think about it and mature a bit, it was clear to me, why was it only black people that were on this chain gang? And, you know, pieces began to fit together. I was just thinking about it before we did the interview, something that I had forgotten a long time. In Washington, DC in those days, the milkman used to deliver your milk and put it in this little silver insulated box by your back door. The milkman was always a white guy. Mm. The garbage collectors were all black. And later it became very clear to me that that was very part and parcel of the segregation and almost the apartheid living that existed in Washington, D.C. at that time. When they bought air-conditioned buses for the city, they were all concentrated in the northwest side, which is where all the white folks lived. You know, you'd get out of the northwest side and there were old raggedy buses, you know, with windows that hardly open. And anyone who's ever been to D.C. knows what the summer is like. So those early early experiences, and one more I wanna talk about in particular, because this I think was transformative for me in my life. We used to go in the summer out to an amusement park in Glen Echo, Maryland, just outside DC. And in 1960, the students from Howard University, one of the top black educational institutions in the country, decided that they would picket Glen Echo to try and integrate the amusement park, something that would be you know inconceivable to us today. But as a kid, this is what I was observing. And the white races came out of the woodwork and they were you know beating on the pickets. They were you know pushing the pickets out of the way. And finally, what they did is they came and threw bleach into the pool so that nobody could use it, white or black. Which in a, in a way shows you how stupid these divisions are because they hurt white people as well as black yes. people. Nobody had a pool to swim in. But those early lessons stuck with me. And as I began to become involved in things in the civil rights movement, which, is, as you say, I started out, well, they killed three civil rights workers in 1964 Schwarner, Cheney, and Goodwin who were all in the South uh, registering black voters, mm-hmm. which in those days was a ja- dangerous proposition. Yes, And the police in Mississippi arrested the three civil rights workers and had them in the jail. Well, they let them out the back door of the jail. They get, handed them over to the Ku Klux Klan and they were never seen again. They had been buried in a bog, which was discovered years later and even when there's a trial years later, if I'm right, they never convicted any of the Klan's members who had been involved in it. So that made me really think to myself, these guys are only a few years older than I am. Yes. And that could be me. And I got to do something about that. So that's when I first went down to the SNCC office, Student non Coordinating Committee. Wow. In D.C., And, you know, I had that experience in the Northwest in the summer. The bus was nice and cool. But as soon as we got outside and I had a transfer to the first bus, you know, going into the black neighborhoods, it was hot. It was sweaty. And it was definitely not on the same bus system, at least in terms of who was allowed on and who rode where. Mm -hmm. But I spent that summer stuffing thousands of letters with Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodwin's picture on it informing people about the travesty that had been committed to those three civil rights workers. And to this day, I still have that image burned into my mind of looking at the letterhead showing these three young men, two white and one black, yep. who had been killed. Soon after that, I was in high school and there was a, a young SNCC member in georgia named julian bond yes julian bond was elected to the georgia legislature back in 1965 but julian bond had spoke out against the vietnam war and this was very early i think this was before dr king had even come out and spoken in opposition to the war Mm -hmm. so i decided on my own i don't know where the inspiration came from but we should start a petition demanding that the Georgia legislature seat Julian Bond. Wow. By this time, they had refused to seat him three times. He had been wow. reelected after they'd kick him out. So we passed this petition. Every single student signed it. I got up on a table in the lunchroom and just raised my voice and I laid out the case of what this was doing to America, what the Vietnam War was doing to American kids and Vietnamese people yes. who were being literally burned to death in their huts. Yes. And to my amazement, everybody signed that petition and we sent it down to the Georgia legislature. And I guess you'd have to say, that's where my point of activism really began because I remember how nervous I was at 15 to stand up on that table and speak out to everyone. John, what was your parents'
1: reaction to all of this? I mean, you started, this is, you're 15. How, yeah. what, what was your parents' reaction? I'm sure this was not their plan for you. I think your, your dad
2: he, he was a self-educated attorney or something like that? Yeah, my dad got to Washington, D.C. with $5 in his pocket. And the way he went to law school, he didn't have any money for tuition. So he'd go sit outside in the hallway and ask the other students to open the transom so he could hear the lecture and take his notes sitting out there. Wow! And in those days, you didn't have to go to a law school. He just went to the public library and studied law books and prepared himself to take the bar. So obviously he had hoped, like most parents do, that he would make a better life for me. Yeah. But here they saw me choosing to take up the struggle of people who were not being treated fairly in society. And I think they were a bit, I wouldn't say unhappy, but I think they were a bit confused
1: oh. you know,
2: how I had gotten on that path. Um, in fact, at one point I this picket line, this was this had to be in 65 as well. We were picketing the South African embassy yes. in Washington DC to protest apartheid and the police tear-gassed the area around Dupont Circle. And when I got home, my parents were very upset because they knew that's where I was going and they had seen on the news that it had been tear-gassed. And they said, "Why can't you do something like march for the Jews in the in the Soviet Union who are being oppressed?" Okay. We're Jewish. Yes. And I said, I understand what you're saying, but I also understand what's in my heart. And I have to pursue my vision of what can make the world better here in the United States. So that's that was how things really got launched. And from then on, I was a political activist through high school and through college, where I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison, precisely because it was the epicenter of so much student outrage and, and insurgency.
1: Which which is interesting for, for you know my generation. I'm a little bit younger than you, but we, we you know like we know that like the Black Panther Party was in Milwaukee and, and all of that, but having a vision that the student body at the University of Wisconsin was kind of a a, a student body that was protesting or anything. I mean, I, I did not know that until I read your book. Tell us about your years at the University of Wisconsin and what you're talking about, it being the epicenter.
2: Well, when I got there, you had to go sign up. There was no computers, obviously, so you had to wait in these long lines to sign up for your classes. And when I was finished, they sent me over to another table, and they said, you have to sign up for reserve officer training. Wow. And I'm, what are you talking about? You know, I'm against the Vietnam War. And that's, you're training officers to go lead the troops in that war. But it was obligatory. You had to attend seven classes as a freshman to be eligible to graduate at that time. So I saw a poster up on the on a telephone pole that says, come to the students for a democratic society meeting, learn how to oppose ROTC on campus. Wow. Make them leave campus They have no right to be forcing students into the Vietnam War. So I went to the first meeting of SDS, and it turns out that I was in the very first ROTC class that semester, and I was delegated with getting up and confronting the second lieutenant who was teaching the class. So I ran back to my dorm and I studied everything I could find about Vietnam so that I'd be prepared And I went to class that Monday and after he had spoken for about 15 minutes of all the benefits you could get if you were in the ROTC and how your school would be paid for. I got up and I said, you know, most of us here don't want to be in ROTC and most of us here don't want to go to Vietnam because we don't think that's a fair war. We think that's an unjust war that the U.S., has intervened in a civil war. And France was kicked out of Vietnam in 1954 at Dien Bien Phu, and the US stepped in as the next colonial power that was going to try and rule Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's why so many of you second lieutenants are getting fragged or shot in the back by your own troops because soldiers are protesting the war and then we about 30 or 40 of us out of a class of probably 75 got up and walked out and the amazing thing was that we went out and educated the other students about what we had done we went through the dorms knocking door by door explaining the war and explaining why we opposed ROTC and a referendum was held and the vast majority of freshmen voted to kick ROTC off campus. And then the student government voted to kick ROTC off campus. And then they had to kick ROTC off campus so that there were no longer these mandatory ROTC classes. But, you know, initially I was primarily involved in a lot of movement against the Vietnam War, but then a very important phase in my life began in February of 1969. There had been an organization called, I I think it was the Black Student Alliance. Yes. They had been bargaining with the university for a couple of years, very peacefully petitioning and meeting and encouraging the university to admit more black students. Out of some 30,000 students, there were 500 black students. that attended Madison. And there was a large black population in Milwaukee. So it's not like there was a shortage of young people who wanted to go to school. The administration refused. They refused to include ethnic studies. They refused to provide a center for the black students where there would be a cultural social center. And they refused to increase the admissions. So the Black People's Alliance called for a student strike. And the first strike was only black students. There were kind of a lot of nationalist students who said, we can do it on our own as blacks. We don't need whites' help. Yes. But it didn't work. I mean, 500 students out of 30,000, you know, that's not going to win a a student strike. No. So we joined it, SDS. And we said, we're going to be there with the black students as long as this takes and no matter what they face in, in building this struggle. So at first, we erected what we called impenetrable picket lines, (laughs) which meant that a line of 10 of us would line up on the steps in front of a classroom building, and we would close it. And we virtually closed the liberal arts part of the campus. But at the same time, we were going out and educating people as to why, why the original sin of slavery had now left a legacy that black students weren't being offered the same opportunity as white students. Mm -hmm. Well, the governor, Lucy, called in the National Guard and they came out with, you know, their bayonets on their long guns, their rifles, and they marched up to where we were. And, you know, they were shoving their bayonets in our face to open the doors to the school So that night, we decided we had to do something dramatic, and we called for a march on the Capitol in Madison. This is an unbelievable story. 10,000 students showed up to march. Wow. That means out of those 10,000 students, if every one of... The black students attended. That was 9,500 white students who were marching for black students to win more admissions, to win ethnic studies. And when I hear people criticizing critical race theory, that it's going to make white kids feel embarrassed and their feelings will be hurt. That's nonsense, it's crazy. It's it's a question of education. It's a question of showing people why together we can create a better world and try and get rid of some of these sins that have lived with us since the founding of this country. So, I mean, that to me was living proof of what we could do. One of the individuals that used to come to speak on campus quite frequently was Chairman Fred Hampton of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party. Yeah, great. A lot of people know who he is because it was just a movie. I think it was Black Messiah, Messiah and the Judas. Yes. About his Judas death. and the Black Messiah. That's right. I said Judith and the Black Messiah yes. reversed it. But and that story for people who haven't seen it briefly gives you an understanding that when Chairman Fred was assassinated, he was assassinated by undercover agents by an undercover agent who had drugged his meal or his drink that night at dinner, and he and his wife or girlfriend had passed out on their bed. And middle of the night, Chicago police burst in, guns blazing, and they assassinated him. And it was a brutal murder. In the end, when the investigation was done, All the bullets but one were shot from the outside in. Oh, my gosh. In other words, the Panthers weren't even able to defend themselves. One Panther who gained some consciousness shot off one round of a gun before he was killed. So there was no distorting the facts. And behind the Chicago police had been the FBI in their COINTELPRO. Which was their surveillance agency, which surveillance program? Excuse me, which was really directed at destruction of the Black Panther Party. Yes, I mean there's a you know now been many many books written on it where it's been documented. You know the FBI's memos and files saying that we have to get rid of the the black movement, the black nationalist movement, and in the end, J. Edgar Hoover wrote. We have to stop any black messiah who can lead black people in this country. Wow. And that black messiah was Fred Hampton, because he joined people together like nobody else could. He organized the first Rainbow Coalition. A lot of people think it was Jesse Jackson. Right. In fact, it was Chairman Fred who had the white patriots who were like southern white kids who lived in Chicago from the, you know, Appalachia. They had the Brown Berets who were Chicano, Mexican-Americans, and they had the Young Lords who were Puerto Rican street gang that had organized themselves to to fight for the people. So Chairman Fred had all these groups working together, and that was something that the FBI three. definitely didn't want Big to exist. And they, they got rid of him. Wow. And after that, a couple of months later, we invited Bobby Rush from yeah. Chicago, yeah. who many people know as a congressman. Absolutely. And Bobby Rush was then that had been the co-chair or assistant chair under Fred Hampton. When we invited him, he had taken over leadership of the Chicago chapter of the Panther Party. And he was scheduled to come to Madison to speak. And I was assigned to be the bodyguard to pick him up at the airport, which was a serious undertaking because they had just assassinated fred hampton yeah and nobody knew what they were willing to do to bobby rush in the end bobby had to cancel because he had another engagement and the deputy minister of defense calvin i forgot his last name now was who was designated to come so in the morning i borrowed an old chevy from one of my friends and um you know this might shock people, but this is what the, day, the those days were like. I brought down a shotgun, and I put it in the back trunk of the car, wow. and I went out to the airport. And I picked up the Panthers. There were both Calvin and then his two bodyguards, and they got in the car, and they loaded up. They took out their guns, took out their bullets. In those days, you could carry a gun and bullets on a plane if they weren't in the same bag. <laughs> wow. And they, they took out their guns, and I... You know, I said to myself, you know, you don't know what's going to happen this day, but you know, you're doing the right thing. Yes. You know, and that's what I kept saying to myself is this is the right thing. You know, if you're asking if you're hoping that black people are going to reach a point of liberation and you don't believe they can do it alone, then it's got to be contingent on us young people to be part of that struggle and to take on that same risk So when we got to the student union we got out of the car and went in through a back door and um, both of uh, Calvin's bodyguards got on the sides of the stage and I was positioned right next to him with the shotgun on my hip
0: Jeez.
2: and you know I it's it's funny it's almost embarrassing to say but I thought to myself, damn, I'm going to get kicked out of here for sure tomorrow because i are not going to let some student stand up here with a shotgun. Wow. And then what am I going to tell my father who right. worked so hard to create a better life <laughs> that his kid got kicked out of school, wow. you know, for being protecting the Black Panther Party. Yes, But luckily there weren't cell phones, so nobody got a picture of me standing there, wow. and I was able to – I didn't get kicked out. But, you know, that – Those were lessons that really determined what you were made of. Yes. Whether you really had the fortitude to fight for change, because I soon after that, I was designated to sell the Black Panther Party paper to students on campus. Right. And I used to get 350 papers a week, and we had a team that would go out and sell them, and we would sell almost all of those 350 papers to students. Well, when I finally got my FBI file many years later, after three or four appeals, the first time my name appears in a thousand pages is John Melrod at this phone number and this address called the Black Panther Party in Chicago. Wow. Put him on the surveillance list. So before I even knew that I was a twinkle in their eye, they were conducting surveillance on me. And this is um, all while you're still at the
1: University of Wisconsin. I mean, you're you're barely what twenty-one years old at this time. All this is no, happening. I
2: always think I was 19, 19 20. and
1: all of this is this is un incredible stories of standing up, speaking out, taking action to make positive change happen.
2: That it, it's unreal, and he's got so much more to say. Well, it is unreal because as I think back about it, we were seventeen years old, yeah. and we were out there taking on. You know, taking on the world world. and planning to change it, planning to remake it as a better world with more humanitarian values, with equality for all people, with justice for people. And what we decided was I was part of a group, once the Students for Democratic Society, unfortunately, fractured due to political infighting, we formed, we were part of an organization called RIM2. Revolutionary Youth Movement too, And we had two platforms that determined why RIM-2 existed. One was that upon our graduation, we would go into the military to organize against the Vietnam War, because at that time, most vets had turned against the war. And that was in the end, that was the reason that the US stopped fighting. Because they couldn't get vets to go out and do do the fighting. Oh. Vets would go out 200 yards, sit down, wait for the day to end and go back go back to camp wow. without having engaged okay. the quote enemy okay. at all. And you know, soldiers were rebelling. there were 225 underground newspapers at bases and in the military in Vietnam, telling the truth about what the fight was not about poor and working people. The fight was about protecting the rich class that has interests worldwide. Mm -hmm. The second part of our ideology was that we believe that it was really only the working class that had the power and the organization to bring about fundamental change, systemic change to the system under which we lived. So in 71, when I graduated, I left Madison and headed for Milwaukee with about 20 or 30 other students and about 10,000 students nationwide who were doing the same thing, committed to the same basic principles mm. of working in tanneries and steel mills and auto assembly plants, you, you know, whatever it was, you know wherever you could land a job that's where you went to organize wow
1: yeah i mean that that again was an incredible turn in the story i mean you go to the university of Wisconsin, again your, your father works his way to be an attorney you decide you're going to take on this fight to try to change the world um and you've just re- recounted some incredible things that you've already done and you're just now that's all in college high school and college now you graduate college And instead of going and taking a big-paying job, you go and take the lowest job you can get in a factory so that you can experience what working people have to experience that are not unionized to try to help organize them. Why? why, I mean, I I read that, and it was very difficult for me to grasp because you put yourself at risk. You're you're being exposed to dangerous chemicals and dangerous equipment, and people are, are, uh, you know, this is terrible working conditions, and yet you voluntarily... Put yourself into these positions. Why?
0: Visit us at joinarcc.org. Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and like us on Facebook.
2: Well, my beliefs were pretty strong that if we didn't do this, we couldn't change society. Wow. And we were willing to take that risk and take on that obligation. And you know, you mentioned that I had to work around dangerous chemicals, and that was true. In my first job, I was instructed to go down into this big cement vat. Actually, my straw boss was a Mexican guy who says, Juan, I got a bueno good job for you. You clean the vata. I said, the vat? And he's, yeah. I said, I looked over. There's a barrel of trichlorethylene next to it with a skull and crossbones. Oh, my God. And I'm thinking, this is not a good job. This is not a bueno job. No, no no bueno. No bueno (laughs) trabajo. No, (laughs) And he said, I said, all right, where's, you know, something to protect my breathing and, you know, some PPE. We didn't call it that then, but protective clothing. And he says, John, that's for sissies, get down in there and clean it. Wow. And I'm like, all right, well, if I've decided that I'm gonna go to work to make a difference, I gotta do what other workers are doing. Yes. Got down in the vat and I began to feel like I was drunk. My head was spinning, my ways, my legs were getting weak under me. So I jumped back out after a minute to get some fresh air And I had to do that sort of like a leapfrog going up in and out for about, I don't remember how long it was for. And each all that time, I'm sweeping in with a whisk broom these particles of trichloroethylene that have dried it on the bottom of the pit. Later, I also had to work in trichloroethylene when I worked at American Motors, which was one of the automobile companies in the United States at that time. In 2004, I was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. And I was only given six months to a year to live. And on the doctor's authorization for surgery, it's written that the pancreatic cancer caused by exposure to toxic industrial chemicals and tanning solvents. Because when I was fired from the auto company, which was a firing that the FBI directly orchestrated. And I know Um, to some people, these things are going to sound beyond belief. I would recommend that they go to Jonathan Melrod, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-M-E-L-R-O-D.com. And I put up the pages from the FBI file right up there. So that people can see what I'm talking about I've and seen read them.
1: about, them. and they're also in the book. I mean, I think there's some some copies of pages in the book as well. Exactly. You know, I've weaved them a bit together. Yes.
2: But you know, I, it was it was it was it was tough. You know, I mean, I lay in bed that night. They told me I didn't have more than six months or a year. And when I told them I just couldn't die at a seven and a ten year old. Their response was, You got to put your fares in order. Wow. And it's a, it's a long story. And that's also in, on my website a full explanation of what I did to fight the cancer. Because I didn't, I went and used chemotherapy for a year and radiation, but I also went and used alternative medicines. You know, I changed my diet, I moved out of the city, I got out of a bad marriage. You know, and I removed all those anxieties and stress, which I fully believe are part of what causes these illnesses. Yeah. And I said to myself, as I lay in bed that night in the hospital, I went through this exercise and I said, when you get embarrassed, you turn red. And when you get, become afraid, you get goosebumps. Well, isn't that your mind affecting your body? And if your mind can affect your body in that way, can it affect your immune system mm. to fight an illness? And I convinced myself that I would be determined that there was no way I was going to die and that I was going to continue to live and I was going to believe that I was going to live, which is very important because when they tell you, you don't have that much time, you know, you look at them as they're the doctor and you're bucking the system right. when you say, I'm not going anywhere. And luckily I did live. My kids later wanted to know, was it really true that I got pancreatic cancer because I worked in a factory and why couldn't I have been a lawyer like my father? And that's when I set out to write the book because I said, damn, if I, if I, if I, do leave this world, and my kids are this young; they'll never understand why I did what my life, what I did. So, in the end, during COVID, I kept writing and writing, and I ended up with a book. But that's how that phase of my life unfolded from the chemicals that were in the factory. Nowadays, I don't believe they'd be there because you've got many more controls with OSHA and you know the you know the union and but those days, you know, the company really ran roughshod yeah. over yes. us. And we'll get to some more stories of where the supervisors just behaved in such such overt racist and sexist ways yeah. that that became a major part of our battle in the factory.
1: Yeah, you you tell so many stories um, in the book that uh, give these just real examples. And it's hard, again, for for like, you know, I'm, I'm uh, 55, so I was born in 68. So when I was coming up, I came up in the 80s, you know, really. You were a kid. Yeah, I was a kid. So by the time I, you know, got into the workforce, you know, a lot of that stuff had kind of been cleaned up. You know, I worked in factories and, you know, I never saw anything like what you're describing. Um, but you heard about it. You heard that this stuff used to happen. To hear you experience it and literally tell stories, it's it's just hard to to really believe. Um, but uh, you know, you know that these things really happen. Um, so you, you're you're now you're in working in these factories. You're part of the, uh, the union. You're starting to help organize. And the thing I thought that was really um, interesting to me is how you were again you described it earlier how you had to change um, the working class culture to understand that uniting and not being divided by racism um, and classism was one of the most essential things to gaining power to fight for their rights. Um, Tell us how you did that in some of the the ways that you were able to get people on board. Because in our part of our struggle is how do we help others transform and take on anti-racism? And you had several people that were absolutely some of the most racist you could describe and some of the most sexist Uh, And you somehow were able to
2: bring them together. How did you do that? Well, I have to start a little bit back. I went to work first in the Milwaukee auto plant of American Motors. And um, we organized a caucus of young workers within the union who wanted to change, both fight the company and change the union. Yes. Make the union more democratic, to make the union more willing to stand up for the workers you know, to get rid of sort of these, you know, a lot of people went and took union jobs because they could get off their job easy and they could, you know, they wouldn't have to work yeah, and they wouldn't do anything. Right. You know, and the people right. were, became very resentful of the union and the company. Absolutely. So I organized, pulled together this caucus of young guys, a couple of black veterans from Vietnam, another Puerto Rican veteran from Vietnam, a couple of interestingly, a couple of young black church ladies who really already understood the sense of community, the sense of togetherness. In fact, one of them was treasurer in her church. And she said, can I be the treasurer of the caucus? Mm. So, you know, we really, it was all of us were young and enthusiastic. I mean, these were the days of Woodstock and long hair and platform shoes. And the, you know, the world was just there for us to change it. And The company sped up the assembly line, added three more cars an hour to everyone's job. I think we were already doing almost a car a minute. And uh, we couldn't do it. I mean, the work was just too tough. So the group of us in this caucus got together and we put out a flyer that we handed out at the gates in front of the plant that said, fight speed up, walk don't run. The contract gives us the right to work at a normal pace. Mm -hmm. And a normal pace means working at a pace where you are being treated with respect and dignity as a a human being and a worker. And interestingly enough, the older workers began to school us. They showed us how you could stay in the car that you were working on. I was putting in taillights that you could stay in and I would put those taillights in no matter how long it took me. And when I kept going past my workstation, working at a normal pace, I would knock the next guy down the line and he would knock the next guy. So they weren't getting cars off the line that were fully built. You know, the aisles were filled with cars that had to be repaired. The roof was filled with cars that had to be repaired. And um, they we decided that we would up the ante. And we went and made some t-shirts. Those days you couldn't go to Kinko's or whomever and make a t-shirt. We got this silk screen and we made a stop sign on it that said, stop speed up. And we got some red paint and we did it on white t-shirts. And we sold them all the next day. And the day after that, we sold another couple hundred. And the company went around and they said, everybody wearing a t-shirt tomorrow is gonna be fired. And I said to myself, wow, this is pretty serious. I mean, I've only got about seven or eight months in. There's a lot of guys who've been here 25, 30 years. And I'm, I don't want to be the one that provokes their discharge for yes. wearing a T-shirt. Yeah. So something interesting happened. A, a steward came up and he bought a T-shirt. He said he's going to wear it in the next day. Then a chief steward that's over a whole department, I was in the trim department, yeah. he came and bought a T-shirt. And then the vice president of the union came and bought a T-shirt. Well, when everybody saw that they were wearing them, they said the next day, everybody wear yours in, which everybody did. And the company had to take the work off our jobs and hire people in off the streets. And we won that battle. Yeah, won it, but the word came out that the international union in the United Auto Workers, was in cahoots with the company and they were going to fire me. They were saying that I was a radical, that I had been involved with the Black Panther Party, that I had been against the Vietnam War, all of which were true. Yep. Um, but of course, the way they cast it, saying that the president of the union has okayed this discharge, you know, people weren't quite sure who, who you know, who to listen to. Yes. And, I was looking down the line and three guards were coming up toward me and they physically lifted me up off my feet because I dug in. I wasn't leaving. And they picked me up and they dragged me down the assembly line. A lot of workers were yelling to stop work, to protect my job. But they were able to get me out of the plant and discharge me. Now, I do get back 2005 days later. Yes, and the courts finally put me back to work. But here's a point of unity. There had been a black chief steward who had run for president of the union. And I had gotten our caucus to back him in that election. He was part of another caucus called Black and White Getting It Together. That was the name of the caucus. They came up to me and they said, can we support you at the union meeting and call for a strike vote to get your job back. And they put out a flyer and they said, this is unjust. Nobody's ever been fired here for following the contract and protesting speed up.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, the international got wind of that. And they're, they're, they're not dumb. So what they did is they got the one black international representative who would come out of that same factory to go to the union meeting to try and corner all the black workers. Don't support Melrod. You know, you could lose your job for striking if he, you know, if you vote to strike. In the end, we did win the vote to put the grievance into a strike procedure, but the president of the union took the clicker and threw it on the ground so this damn clicker doesn't work, called for a voice vote and said, the no's have it. And then we looked in the back of the room. It was lined with police. What? Well, it was years later that I found out that my discharge was orchestrated by the FBI. By the FBI, man. In the memo, memo in, in, on my website, in the book, Fighting Times, Yes. which people can get by going to PM Press dot org .org, Mm pmpress.org and putting in the name fighting times and then you'll get a discount code if you type in if you type in gift in capital letters g-i-f-t gift g-i-f-t in capital letters so people can you know pick that up if they want to hear more we then we'll be able to cover but in the file one of the early letters was that the fbi sent a memo to amc And they said, get rid of Melrod and don't ever let him back to work. Wow. You know, he's causing sit-downs, he's causing work stoppages, he's tied in with people that are doing this in other factories. You know, they're nothing but a bunch of radicals and no good communists. And, you know, whatever else they could throw at us. Interestingly enough, that's what the company used. When they got to the court at the National Labor Relations Board, the judge Called them out in a thirty-page decision that said that they were bringing about the McCarthy days from the nineteen fifties, painting everybody with this broad brush, calling them communists, so they could get rid of them. So even the court had ruled that that's that was wrong. Their discharge, but they wouldn't let me back. They followed the FBI's advice, and it took me going to the federal, I mean the uh, the appellate court yes. in Chicago and they ordered me reinstated. But I went. I want to tell one more story before I go back into being reinstated, because to me, this is the lesson that you and I have talked about, that is really teaches me and I think everyone how people can change and how people can get rid of racist ideas. I went to work after I had been fired. It was hard to find a job because they kept tagging after me and telling the employers to get rid of me. So I finally like went, you know, made sure nobody was following me and, you know, got a job at a steel fabrication factory. And we went on a eight week strike that our caucus, I formed a caucus among young guys on second shift, had been telling people that we, if together, if we united, we could win better conditions and a pension. There was a decent pension you could live on any event. These guys that were in the caucus were all white, muscle car driving, basically redneck type guys. Mm. You know, they had all been in juvie, you know, and when they were always talking racism using the N word, you know, here and there in the bar after work where we stopped every day. I said, why do you guys gotta keep talking like that? You know? Yeah. And they said, look, we were in juvie, and in juvie, it's whites and Indians together, it's blacks on one side, and it's Mexicans on the other side, and you gotta fight each other for who watches what TV show and who gets the popcorn. And so we hate them. And I said, but that's that's just a bunch of nonsense. At that point, Big Carl, who was six foot five, And I'm about six foot, I'm five foot five, (laughs) gave me a right hook. And I went flying off the bar stool and I can't remember if I sprained or broke my ankle. But in any event, we go out on strike and, you know, we were the ones that really led the strike. The union didn't do a damn thing. They're what we call a business union. They sat in the union hall and didn't come out and lead us on the strike. We got people, you know, in those days, if you needed food, you'd go down to the, the, uh, welfare office they give you a big brick of orange what they called cheese yeah but it's hard to believe that was actually cheese (laughs) and they give you some peanut butter and that's what that's what you needed to keep alive wow and we would win when they threatened to take away strike benefits which were only 25 dollars a week from the young workers we said we're going to march on the steel workers union hall and they gave us those benefits but then they did something where they that really hurt They took away one of these young guys, cherry red Trans Am with big white, big white tires. They repossessed it. And there was a pale of depression descended on the assembly line. And guys actually came up to me and said, "Okay, Melrod, we listened to you. We did what you said. Now, what are we going to do about Eyebolt's car? So I said, "Okay, we're going to go out there and pick it. GMAC, the finance company for GM. yes, And we're going to picket it until they give us his keys back. And they were all Melrod. The court already ordered it. I said, no, no, nothing in this world is determined. We can do things that you never think thought we could do if we do it in numbers. Yep. We went out there to picket with 75 of us. All of a sudden, two carloads of black guys show up. Oh, and everybody on the picket lines looking back, these white guys are buzzing to each other. Who are they? What are they doing there? And they join in with us and they're chanting, we want Ibolt's car back. What? So three of us went in to meet with the manager, myself and Bolt and another brother. And we said, we want Ibolt's car. He said, no, no, the court ordered it re- repossessed and we've got it. And, you know, it's our right to own it. And we said, well, we're on strike and we're not going to let you take away his car that he's paid on up to now because he missed one month's payment. And they said, no, we're not, we're, not, we're not caving in. So I said, you see all those guys out there? In the next two minutes, they're all going to be in here. <laughs> and we're not leaving here until we get his keys. Sure enough, he hands us the guy. He said, take the goddamn keys. Get the hell out of front of my office. We went home, and it was like a great victory. But here's the point of the story. The next week, these same black guys were on strike. They were all meat cutters. Oh, wow. And eight plants in Milwaukee were meat cutters and it was almost all black. Okay. And they were strong union guys. And the companies were trying to break their strikes by bringing in police and strike breakers. And I said to our guys, let's go down there and join with them. Guys are kind of nervous, you know. I mean, this was basically in the inner city. Yeah. You know, all of the eight meatpacking plants, they did it. We took about three carloads of guys down there, and they were nervous at first, but within five minutes, they were right in there on that picket line, arms locked, wow. holding back strikebreakers, breakers, and their attitude had changed. It didn't matter how much talking I did, it was when they saw that black workers supported them and they could support black workers that they understood unity. That's incredible, even even Big Carl, he was down there too? Not only was Big Carl was down there, Eyebolt was there, Wild Man was there, Dog was there. They all came, you know? And a couple of years later, I was looking at my pictures. Well, I actually have them in an album here. And I saw Big Carl and Wild Man at Marches for Other Strikes. So they stayed active. That's great. Um, You know, so that's one of my stories on my real belief that people People. can change if you don't lecture them, but you kind of show them in real day-to-day life what unity means. Yes. Um, When when I went down to the assembly line in uh, Kenosha, which was a much more rural plant. We started up our caucus again down there and pretty soon I was elected steward to represent people. And there was this one particular foreman, his name was Steve Freeman. Yeah. One day, this young guy and this young girl come up to me and they say, hey, Melrod, you're a a steward. We want to tell you about this foreman Freeman. We were sitting in the bar before work. They were on second shift and so was Freeman. And we saw. That we decided to be nice to him and we said, hey, come on over, we'll buy you a drink. So he comes on over and he points into the back where people are dancing. And he says to this, it was a guy and a girl, he says, you let that shit happen up here? And they said, what are you talking about? He says, you let blacks and whites dance together? And they were like, dude, yeah, we do. and. They came in and they told me about this guy, Freeman. I'm guessing he didn't use the word blacks. I'm guessing he used another word. Well, I'm going to get to where he used the other word. Yeah. Because he was such an overt racist that it was even hard in the end for the company to believe they had to fire him. But, but, uh, you know, I started to come in on second shift to check with the workers that were angry and filing grievances against Freeman. And I talked to this one black brother who said, yeah, yeah. He took this 35 pound air gun and threw it at me and called me a lazy MFN word. Wow. And I said, Crazy. That ain't right. Oh my God. We got to do something about that. Absolutely. Then he said, Well, go talk to those two black women over there about what happened to them. And I went over to them and I said, Have you had any problems with Steve Freeman? They said, Yeah. He put his fingers like with his thumb up and his forefinger out like a gun and he played like he was shooting us with a pistol What? then he came over and said bang bang two dead blackbirds and if if that wasn't enough he said to one of the women I'd like you better if you weren't so flat chested what? as God is my witness this is the truth wow so there were many more stories but I don't want to belabor them people can read the book but we decided we, we did it started a petition that everybody on second shift signed 300 people. You know, we had all seven stewards follow them around like they were puppy dogs, they wouldn't leave them alone. And there was one provision in the contract which said if if a supervisor does union employee work, you can write him up a grievance on it and get paid an hour. And we used to call that bounty hunting. (laughs) So we put out a flyer that said, bounty hunting is open, watch for Steve Freeman. If he picked up as so much as a screw, he got written up. But finally topped it off was 26 out of 27 people in his hand in his section raised their hand at the same time and demanded to go to the bathroom. So he finally they couldn't run the line because he couldn't stop him from going to the bathroom. After that, the union brought in the Fair Employment Practices Committee that one of our caucus members was on and uh They went to the company and it was the first foreman they had ever discharged for that, for for behavior, you know, for acting like toward other workers. And this wasn't an isolated case. I mean, I know we've been talking for a long time now, and I have a few other things I do want to make sure I squeeze in. Sure, go ahead. But that was a victory. That again showed that in unity there is strength. Absolutely. And there was strength in our unity to get rid of him. We were contacted by the United League of Mississippi, which was a black organization in Tupelo, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And this was in about, God, I can't remember the book. I think it had to be about 1983. And they had asked us activists from around Milwaukee and Kenosha to come down and join them in a Labor Day March because the Klan had reactivated itself in that area of Mississippi. And the Klan was terrorizing people, burning crosses. And the other demand was that, black, that businesses hire more black workers because very few businesses would hire blacks. And the other demand was that farmers, white farmers, big agro farmers stopped stealing the land of individual small black farmers, which yes. was going on. Yes. Hundreds of thousands of acres was getting stolen. So we put out a flyer at the factory that said, we're going down to South to march against the KKK. You know, they're racist, they, they, they are down on unions, you know, they're down on black people, they're down on Jews, you know, and we've got to stand with the people of Tupelo. So we were, we took a, you know, we got it, we rented a Greyhound bus and we, you know, we tried to sleep overnight on the bus, but we pull up the next morning, we pull up in front of this building, and I have a picture of it in the In the book, and on the logo of the building, it is Tupelo Police Department. Mm. And out the doors walk 20 police, all dressed in their white Klan robes with the white pointy hats. And they had brand new axe handles in their hands and pistols in their pockets. And I said, oh, my God, you know, what are we going to do if they attack us? because the police are the Klan and the Klan are the police,
1: yeah.
2: you know? So we got ready to march and it was one of the the, mo- the scariest episodes of my life. You know, I mean, there were a lot of, you know, Southern whites that hadn't woke up to yeah. where the world was and was going to be in the future. And they were all lining the main street with their shotguns and their long guns. And I said, damn, I mean, if they opened fire, this is, you know, we're done for. So I happened to go up to the front of the march and, and I looked in this pickup truck that was leading the march and around it were all these young black Vietnam vets and in that pickup truck were their weapons from Vietnam. Mm. So they had come back with that lesson mm. that, okay, if the Klan's armed, we're armed. We're armed. And it's like, we've got a nuclear weapon and they got one. Mm. It's mutual self-destruction. So, you know, we concluded the march. We came back up to the plant. And we put out a flyer explaining what we had done and what we thought we had accomplished. Well, not everyone agreed with what we were saying or what we had done. And I went out after work one day and I went to the tavern. Sounds like I stopped in the tavern a lot, which was <laughs> correct in those days. And, and uh, I felt something sticking in my side. And I look down, and it's a thirty-eight. Jeez! And Fiscal. the guy says to me, "My name's Dead Eye De Marino, and I'm a member of the White People's National Associates Party. I'm a Nazi, and you're that goddamn commie Jew that puts out the Fighting Times newsletter." And this is back back
1: in Wisconsin. But you're you're back. You're not in, in Tupelo anymore. You went back to your. To no, work. this is when we after we went back. After this you went back, we got, you put out the, the newsletter me. about what you had done. So this guy approaches you and the boy and pulls a pistol in your back.
2: That's in my in my stomach, yeah. Jeez. And you know, and I said, God, you know, how am I gonna get out of this? So I said, bartender, Midori, double shots for both of us. I said, Deadeye, let's do them right down. And then I said, another round, Midori. Well, after a couple hours, I started saying to Deadeye, I said, Deadeye, you're in the trucking department. You drive a fork truck. When all of the fork truck drivers stopped driving and had a sit-down strike because one of them had been injured by a radiator cap not being on the radiator and he'd gotten burned, who was it that supported your sit-down? Well, he said, I guess that was the Fighting Times. And I said, and what did they do when they fired that steward? Who supported you in that fight to get that steward back to work? He says, yeah, I guess that was you guys. And I said, well, then let me ask you, why are you so goddamn upset about Fighting Times? And he says, you know, I guess you guys really are for the union, and I'm for the union, so we got that in common, and now he's hugging me. You know, it's three hours later, we're both stumbling around hugging each other, and he's calling me, brother, you know, I'm behind you, you know, I'm your supporter. And from that day on, you know, he never he never made comments like that. And, um, you know, when Hillary Clinton talked about a basket of deplorables, Yeah, I really resented it because she was talking about guys like that, wow. who, if you're there with them, yeah. and if you're telling them the way it is, can change. change. And that's what your podcast is about, Absolutely, you know, that people can change. That's why I've been so excited to get on it and wait. And we had to postpone it a couple times. And each time I was, damn, when's my time gonna come? But uh
1: Yeah, so it's here. It's here, man. And you are just you're just doing a fantastic job, man. These stories are unbelievable. And um, I gotta tell you, when I read the story about Di Marino, I had to read it like three times. And I just kept saying to myself, Damn, I don't know what I would have done in that situation. For you to be that cool and calm, um, to say, Let's have a couple of shots. He barked at to give a couple of shots, and then three hours later this guy's hugging you, man. And that's not the only
2: time that you've been threatened. Is it? Is it not? That's not the only time. No, it's not the only time. I mean, there was another foreman, Bernie New, who is uh, a general foreman, excuse me. And on the night before the Thanksgiving break, he was walking around saying, "I'm gonna find me a piece of, you know, yeah. a a yes. tonight. I'm gonna find myself peace." You know, and he's broadcasting it to everybody. Terrible. And the women were really upset about it. And they came to us and they said, can you guys do something about this Bernie New? So we wrote an article. Most of our articles in our little newsletter that came out once a month were written by people in the factory. And if they didn't know how to write, you know, then we would do it with them. Because a lot of guys who would come up from down south and whatever didn't have the writing skills to be able to write even a small article. But it was really important for us to train people. And uh, so we put out an article and uh, we said Bernie New thinks he's the new Don Juan. And this is what he was doing on the night before Thanksgiving. And we're not going to let this go on. We're not going to let women be treated this way disrespectfully in the factory that we all work in. Well, he got busted down from general foreman to foreman. Oh, boy. Then the word went out that he was going to get me. And he's part of the new clan. That was a family. Their name was NEU. And they were all big guys. Oh, my God. And they were all always fighting behind the bar. Okay. And one of the foremen who kind of liked me came up and said, John, take that seriously. He's going to come get you. So then for about two weeks, it was... You know, I was worried I'd walk out of the plant and be looking around to make sure he wasn't there. And about on the second week, I got to my car, I had a Thunderbird in those days, when the Thunderbirds had that hood that went out about seven feet out in front of yeah, the car Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and a padded roof, and uh, got to the car, and there wasn't a window left in it. Oh my and it God. was zero degrees out in Wisconsin. He had taken out every window. There wasn't even a shard of glass left. And you know, we all knew that Bernie knew it exacted his pound of flesh. Yes. And I'm driving home like in a wind tunnel with zero degree <laughs> water, weather coming back at me. So you know, there were a lot of those kind of incidents. You know that yeah. that that occurred over the time that I was there. Um,
1: man, John, this unbelievable and. Uh, we got to have you back because uh, there's so much more that you can cover. I, I got to say again, the book Fighting Times uh, is is an unbelievable book. It is so incredible. I'll we'll talk more about it here in a second. But uh, please go out and buy it. Um, but I do want to give you one chance to, is there one message you'd want to leave the audience with? Again, I'm going to have you back next season because there's just too much. There are too many other stories that are so valuable in um, examples of transformation personal transformation and helping others transform that we got to have you back but uh I'm going to hold you to it uh, yeah for sure for sure but is, is there one message you at least want to leave this the, the, the audience with as we end
2: 2023 yeah you know there is and it came it's at the last page of my book and i had always read books about a socialist at the Around 1917, his name was Eugene Debs. Okay. People may have heard from him. He was arrested and incarcerated for refusing to serve in World War I because he said this is just a war between big capitalist countries and it doesn't serve working people's interests. And this quote's from him. To stir the masses, to appeal to their higher, better selves, to set them thinking for themselves and to hold ever before them the idea of mutual kindness and goodwill based upon mutual interest is no render real service to the cause of humanity, is to render real service to the cause of humanity. And I've tried to live by that slogan and a lot of young people who are organizing at Starbucks and organizing at Amazon, who bought my book and got in touch with me, they said how inspired they've been by it. And that means so much to me. That's what I wanted to do. Beside giving my kids some idea of who I was, I felt that I could tell these stories in a way that people would understand that we can make the world a better place. Every one of us has an obligation to do that. And it doesn't matter how small or large your contribution is. It's just the fact that you do something. So that's the message I would leave people with and really appreciate if they pick up the book or go onto the website, JonathanMelrod.com. Thank you.
1: Thank you for being a true example of standing up, speaking out, and taking action with courage to create real change. You've given us so many examples of real change. You've shown us uh, what a true personification of doing that really looks like. And I also want to congratulate you on publishing your book. You know, not a lot of people can write a book, and this is a phenomenal book. Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Class War. I, I've already said, I'm going to say it again, I thoroughly enjoyed this book. Um, it was um, extraordinary, in my view, in terms of just bringing forward just so many great stories um and so many details john shared a few but there are so many more i guarantee anyone in the audience if you buy the book and read it you're going to catch yourself saying wow you heard me saying wow a lot of times on this podcast when i was reading i kept saying wow i kept saying what john did that i can't believe it you'll be laughing some of the stories that john tells you will be entertained and thrall and like john said you will be inspired john again thank you for showing us Again, what being a true soldier is all about, a soldier on the front lines of the class war and the war to end racism and hate, what that is all about, reminding us once again, like you just said, hope starts with each one of us by following the examples of you, but not doing everything you did the exact way. We can do whatever we can do. You took, you, you've been over the last 60 years, you've been doing just incredible things that are examples of being of, of being truly optimistic and truly enduring. But not everyone has to do it that way. You may not agree. You may not like all the things that John has done. But you can't argue that he stood up, he spoke out, and he took action. And we all can do that same thing. Every little bit that we do will make a difference because it all, again, comes back to us. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, if each of us does something, what we can do, and every day we do a little bit more, and if all of us as individuals, and collectively we do that, like John said, not only can we change our families and our friends, transform them, we can transform our communities, we can transform our places of work, we can transform our state, our countries, we can transform the world. That's what hope is all about. How optimistic people endure. So again, thank you, John. Again, I will have you back on the Ark of Change. Um, and, uh, one last word from you.
2: Yeah. Um, that was a beautiful ending that you just recited. Um, I just want to say to people, we wanted to make the book available so that nobody price is not an issue. So if you go to pmpress.org and you find the book and you put in the discount code in capital letters, G I F T gift, it's affordable for everyone. And it's a good Christmas present. (laughs) Fantastic. Again, I can attest to that. That's it
1: for season three. We'll be back in 2024 with our fourth season of The Arc of Change, and we'll bring John right back to talk about all the other stories he left out. Have a wonderful holiday season, everyone. Happy New Year to all. Thanks again, John.
2: Thanks so much. I really appreciate being on.
0: Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about ARC. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. To find the Arc of
1: Change podcast with Donzo Leggett and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition or Arc, please visit us at joinarc.org. You can also subscribe to the Arc of Change with Donzo Leggett on your favorite podcast hosting sites. I greatly look forward to our next episode, an opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement that will change the world by eradicating racism once and for all. Until next time, stay safe and continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism and hate still exist. Thanks for listening and goodbye.
0: The Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about ARC, donate to our cause, and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.